You're listening to the podcast of Christ Church in Albuquerque, New Mexico. We hope these sermons help you to know God through Christ by deepening your belief in the gospel. Tonight's reading comes from Matthew chapter 20, verses 1 through 19. For the kingdom of heaven is like a master of a house who went out early in the morning to hire laborers for his vineyard. After agreeing with the laborers for a denarius a day, he sent them into his vineyard. And going out about the third hour, he saw others standing idle in the marketplace. And to them he said, you go into the vineyard too, and whatever is right, I will give you. So they went. Going out again about the sixth hour and the ninth hour, he did the same. And about the eleventh hour, he went out and found others standing. And he said to them, why do you stand here idle all day? They said to him, because no one has hired us. He said to them, you go into the vineyard too. And when evening came, the owner of the vineyard said to his foreman, call the laborers and pay them their wages, beginning with the last up to the first. And when those hired about the eleventh hour came, each of them received a denarius. Now when those hired first came, they thought they would receive more, but each of them also received a denarius. And on receiving it, they grumbled at the master of the house, saying, These last worked only one hour, and you have made them equal to us who have borne the burden of the day and the scorching heat. But he replied to one of them, Friend, I am doing you no wrong. Did you not agree with me for a denarius? Take what belongs to you and go. I choose to give to this last worker as I give to you. Am I not allowed to do what I choose with what belongs to me? Or do you begrudge my generosity? So the last will be first and the first last. And as Jesus was going up to Jerusalem, he took the twelve disciples aside, and on the way he said to them, See, we are going up to Jerusalem, and the Son of Man will be delivered over to the chief priests and scribes, and they will condemn him to death, and deliver him over to the Gentiles to be mocked and flogged and crucified, and he will be raised on the third day. This is the word of the Lord. Our Father, we pray that now that you would show us your glory. Lord Jesus, we pray that you would make yourself great in this place and in our lives and our hearts and spirit. We pray now that you would help us to understand your word. We pray these things in Christ's name. Amen. May be seated. Well, good evening. If you're visiting with us tonight, we're so glad that you're here. My name is Nathan. I'm one of the pastors here. We generally will just preach our way through an entire book of the Bible, maybe a paragraph or two each week. Uh, The Bible comes to us in lots of different genres, but it always comes to us in context. It's following a particular argument. It's following a particular story, a flow. Uh, The Bible isn't just a bunch of disjointed spiritual platitudes or some um, interesting bits of advice or some stories here and there. Uh, it, It fits together. It moves with a goal. We've spent the past few weeks beginning to walk through one of Paul's letters that he wrote to his young pastor protege, Timothy. Uh, But rather than just parachute you in, many of you who are just visiting with us uh, this week, uh, without much context for what's been going on in that letter, uh, I've decided to do exactly what I said not to do and just take this story out of context. This story, maybe not at first glance, but clearly explains just so clearly explains the gospel of Jesus that five people are going to profess with their lives in baptism tonight. And it is this gospel that has flipped we Christians' lives completely upside down. This is an upside down story, and I hope we can see that together tonight. If you join with us again next week, 
uh, give us more of an on-ramp to where we've been and where we're going in 1 Timothy. But to Matthew 19, you heard Leslie read this really surprising story that Jesus told. Jesus often taught in parables, uh, stories just like these. So before we get into this particular parable, I want us to think really just briefly for a moment on what is a parable. Uh, these are nice little Sunday school stories, perhaps, uh, some of them. Many of you, if you grew up in the church, you learned about these stories uh, in an animated cartoon or on a felt board. Uh, but many of these stories that Jesus tells in parables are not, not nice stories at all, right? Like a king destroys a city for speaking a word against him. A manager cheats his master out of money and then Jesus praises him for doing that. That's really strange. A guy is burning in hell and he's begging for relief. Like these are not all the time, just nice little stories. So why does Jesus teach in parables? Well, first of all, that God himself is a storyteller. The very first words of the whole Bible come to us almost like a once upon a time. It begins in the beginning. 30% of the Bible is propositional, meaning just explaining an argument or giving us sentences of logic or of truth, but the rest of the 70% comes to us in the form of narrative, in symbol. We are created in God's image, and we long for stories. So when we, have, we get home after a long day and we're with our roommates or with our families around the dinner table, we don't ask each other things like, um, tell me some facts about today. We say, tell me about today. Like, tell me the stories that you encountered today. We love stories. We read books. We watch movies. We listen to music. And Jesus is a storyteller. He knows that not only we love stories, but he himself is the storyteller. He's not only the storyteller, but he is the story, the word, man, the word made flesh. He is both the storyteller and the protagonist of the greatest story. So these stories that Jesus tells, these parables, are not just analogies or sermon illustrations. Perhaps you've perhaps heard them described as uh, earthly stories with heavenly meanings. And while there's some truth to that, these are not just moral stories intended to stand on their own to teach us some universal lesson about God or something like that. One commentator says that parables function as a lens that allows us to see the truth and then correct our own distorted vision. So these are interesting, compelling, and sneaky stories. Jesus uses these stories to like get around our preconceptions of the world, the way that we suppose things to be, get past our prejudices, and then confront us. So perhaps you know the story of David in the Old Testament where he uh, takes a, a married woman for himself. He has her husband killed. He just is a tyrant. He's abusing his kingly power. And he's got this friend, this prophet named Nathan. And Nathan could have come to David and said, O king, you have abused your power. You are a murderer. You are an adulterer. You have coveted and stolen. And what would David have done to to Nathan likely. We've already seen at what lengths he will go to preserve himself, to defend himself. He probably would have just announced, get this guy out of here and off with his head, right? Instead, Nathan tells him a story, a parable that David then enters into. He puts himself within the story, and then at the end of the story, his vision is corrected. He sees himself to be what he is. When Nathan says, you're the man, David connects the world of the story to the real life, and all David can say is, I have sinned against the Lord. 
the listener willingly enters the world of the story. So a parable isn't just a sermon illustration. It is meant to awaken our understanding of what Jesus is teaching. It is meant to provoke our consciences, but then, most importantly, then move us to action, move us to changed belief. So parables force us to move from the world of the story back to our own world and then to change. So like Nathan, Jesus understands that we are all people uh, who enter ourselves into story and then he can sneak past our tendency to just live in empty or impractical doctrine. So when some Pharisees here in the Gospel of Matthew are criticizing Jesus for hanging out with so-called sinners, he tells them a story about two sons. The prodigal son is another parable that you know of. One who is prodigal spends all of his inheritance but then repents. And then the other son who thinks because of his position and that he has worked himself into the father's favor, now he is somehow owed more than others. So Jesus is, he's like this ninja who's like sneaking past the Pharisees' prejudices, their understanding of who God is, and then of who belongs in the kingdom and who doesn't. And then he shows them, he corrects their vision. Or he tells a story of a guy who, uh, when a guy comes to Jesus claiming that he loves his neighbor, Jesus tells him that he really doesn't. He could have just told him that, but he tells him by way of a story, by way of a parable. He sneaks past a preconceived notion about what love really is to challenge him about this story with the story of the Good Samaritan. So what? So what? This is a story that Jesus is going to use to sneak past our understanding, our wrong vision, and our prejudices to correct our vision. We'll do this by just thinking through this parable in two different sections. First, in just understanding the parable, and then, hopefully, together, then now living the parable. So, understanding the parable. What's the point of this parable that we heard Leslie read from Matthew 20? Who's the main character? There have been lots of allegorical interpretations uh, throughout the history of the church, we see five different hirings in this short parable. So people have seen this from like the, the people who were hired at the beginning of the day is like Adam and it goes all the way through Noah and then Noah to Abraham. And then it's like just going all the way from Christ to the present, perhaps. Or like different uh, stages where you became a Christian. Perhaps uh, you became, you, you came to faith in Christ when you were a young person and then, uh, or perhaps for others, became a Christian on their deathbed and they perhaps have no more right to claim God's grace than others. Maybe. But thematically, this parable could have easily been placed elsewhere in Matthew's gospel. Perhaps maybe with parables of the present kingdom or with parables about judgment or something, but Matthew places it here. So what's the context Here's a, here's a rule for us, to a good guideline for us as we read the Gospels and as we read parables. Never read a parable out of context. Read the story, but read what's before it and what is after it. That will help us understand the parable. So what's our context? Well, in chapter 19, we have the story of a rich young ruler where Jesus tells him that your treasure on earth is not what saves you. And so then he tells him, because he's put so much hope and faith in the things that he has, Jesus tells him to sell everything he has. Treasure me above all else. And then, and then only, you can have treasure in heaven. And then Peter and the disciples come to Jesus and they basically have said, well, good news, Jesus, we have left everything. So where's the treasure? What are we going to get? What's this treasure you're talking about? And Jesus tells them in chapter 19, verse 29, that the treasure, the treasure is going to be great. It's going to be hundredfold. But it's going to be upside down. 
because the first will be last. Reward doesn't come like you think it does, disciples. And they're like, huh? And then Jesus is just seemingly like, well, let me, let me tell you a story. Let me help you understand. And then he does. He tells the story that we've just heard read. And if you read this story in the newspaper, what would your reaction be? Like if you heard some uh, Albuquerque Journal reporter telling us this story that this very thing happened at like Los Poblanos or something. Like what would your reaction be? I think because we know this story and it's in the Bible and Jesus said it, we think it must be good. But if you read about this happening at Los Poblanos, I think all of us would think that is patently unfair. (laughs) That is a terrible thing that Los Poblanos just did. Jerry Bridges tells the hypothetical story of a freshman English class. Listen to this. On the one hand, there were a few conscientious and well-disciplined students who had learned good study habits in high school. They consistently did assignments, studied well for tests, and turned in well-prepared term papers on time. At the opposite end of the spectrum were the typical party boys who did just enough work to get by. They rarely did assignments, hardly studied for tests, and never turned in a term paper on time. And as it's typical in such a class, the vast majority of the students were somewhere in between. At last, the final exam day arrived, and as expected, the disciplined students did very well, and the party boys all did poorly. After a couple of days, the professor posted the grades outside his office door. As the students crowded around to see what grade they had received, they were all stunned to see that everyone in the class had received an A. The party boys could hardly believe their good fortune, and the good students were outraged to realize that those who deserved to fail had received the same top grade as they had. Now, if you had read that story, what would your response be? Unfair, right? These guys who didn't study at all, they just partied, and then they got an A. Not only an A, but the same A that those who studied well. That's not fair, we think. An interpretive key might come for us to understand this parable in verse 10. Look at verse 10 if you've got your Bible in front of you. We empathize with the workers who, in verse 10, thought they would receive more. We, like Peter in chapter 19, verse 27, we like wonder what we're going to get. What are we going to get for following you, Jesus? And we rankle at this parable, perhaps because it seems unfair. But was the landowner, was the owner of this vineyard actually being unfair? Far from it. A denarius is a fair day's wage. It would be maybe like 60 or 70 bucks today. There was no such thing as minimum wage in these times, but if there was something like it, this would be it. While it wasn't much, most were still in poverty. A denarius was enough to provide for a worker and his family. The employer of day laborers was required by the Jewish law to pay at the end of every day because this was sustenance living. This was the way for the community to uh, live together and provide for one another. So here's the deal. The landowner was fair with those that he hired at the beginning of the day, wasn't he? He promised them a fair day's wage. And then he became more and more and more generous with those he hired later in the day. Did the one-hour workers, did the three-hour workers deserve 60 or $70? No, that's an, that's an incredibly hour, incredible hourly rate, right? No, he's paying them with extreme generosity. And so Bridges says that the landowner could have paid them only what they had earned, but he chose to pay them according to their need, not according to their work. He's not paying them 
their hourly rate. He's paying far above what they deserved. He perhaps is considering the hungry children at home. He's perhaps considering the family's needs and gave more than they had earned. Nevertheless, the full day laborers became jealous. They became angry precisely because of the generosity of the landowner. Why? Well, verse 10, again, they thought they would receive more. So here's the most important thing for us and Peter to consider as we hear this parable. Even though the landowner is extremely generous, why do we think the landowner is being unfair? Because we immediately put ourselves in the position of the one who has worked all day. We, Peter, think of ourselves as a full 12-hour day laborer. This can either be because of perhaps the good things that we've done for God. Peter says in chapter 19, he says, See, we have left everything. We followed you. What then will we have? James and John, or at least their mother, thought that they were 12-hour workers. We're going to see that in verse 21 of chapter 20. They're expecting to sit at Jesus' right hand and left hand because of all that they have done for him. So perhaps we think, I've been faithful at church for decades. I've been at a church service maybe 45, 50 times a year. Incredible, incredible how much I have served the Lord. I've read my Bible a lot. I know it well. Perhaps some of you Christ Church folks who are still hanging in there with the read scripture plan, we're almost there. You've done it. You're, you're so disciplined. How, how pleased the Lord must be with me. You've gone on mission trips. You make the right social media posts. You have a pristine voting record, always voting for those who God would want you to vote for. You've worked really hard to abstain from the stuff that you see other people not doing. You perhaps have become like Jonah, who doesn't think that others deserve the same kind of grace that you do because of how faithful you have been to the Lord. So you think of yourself as a full 12-hour worker, or perhaps you think of yourself as a full 12-hour worker, not just because of the good things that you've done, but perhaps because of the bad things that you've endured. Many of you have gone through really, really hard things in the past year, in the past month, perhaps even in the past week. Your body is failing you, seems to be against you, and you've suffered. You've had difficult difficult things going on within your family, seemingly irreconcilable conflict. You've had extremely hard financial problems. No matter how hard you work, you just can't seem to get out of debt or pay the bills that you need to pay. So surely because of the way that I am suffering, God thinks of me in a different category than those who don't suffer as I do. Perhaps in his questioning and accusing of God, Job had shifted his thinking into thinking that his suffering had somehow made him into a full day, 12-hour worker, somehow owed more from God because of the way that he suffered. And then like Job, perhaps when we see others blessed with money, blessed with nicer cars or nicer houses, blessed with more popularity or better looks or accolades or the promotion that we thought that we deserved, we get jealous and we silently 
or perhaps not so silently accuse God of, how could you? How could you? How could you be so unfair? The things that I have done in service to you, the ways in which I have suffered for you and not doubted or cursed you, and now you still don't act like I deserve. Deep within this is just a sense of entitlement. Think about it, though. Like, if you were to, as a citizen of the United States and of Albuquerque, over the next 365 days, perfectly keep all of the traffic laws, never breaking the speed limit, never even a rolling stop, perfectly yielding to those who you need to yield to, you would not show up at City Hall and expect some reward, some certificate of perfect law-keeping. Now, you've just done your duty. You have done what we all ought to do every day and every year, right? If we were somehow completely obedient, completely contentedly sinless, would God be obligated to reward us? I think not. We're just doing our duty as his creation. And the good things and the bad things, we serve and obey. So God tells Job, were you there? Who has a claim against me that I must pay him? Everything under heaven belongs to me. Same as the landowner in verse 15 of this parable, where the landowner says, am I not allowed to do what I choose to do with what belongs to me? What good things do we deserve? Do we deserve nothing? Nothing. We don't even deserve reward if we were obedient, never mind the daily and active rebellion that we do lead. What do we deserve? We deserve death. We deserve separation from God. We have not lived a perfect year of keeping all of the laws. In fact, we see the laws and we want to act in opposition to these laws. We are constantly and implicitly shaking our fists at the heavens, saying, I will not sit under your rules for my life. What is it that we deserve? Death. And yet, what has God given us? Breath, a beating heart, a beautiful mountain to look at, the Nate 66 food truck with awesome pulled pork sandwiches. Like, anything that we experience is a gift from the Lord, which is what James says, that every good and perfect gift comes from the Father of lights. So every, anything good that we have in our life comes from God as a gift, which is infinitely more than what we deserve. So everything that you experience to a great church, a great meal, even the last breath and the last beat of your heart was pure grace, was pure mercy, was love, all gifts from above, much less for we Christians, our very salvation. Grace, grace, and more abundant grace. So Jesus has begun to sneak past Peter's, sneak past our presumption that we are a full-day, hard-working, 12-hour worker. 
We are not. We are not owed anything. But it's one thing for us to just understand the theological concepts. It's quite another for us to understand and then begin to live this. Begin to enter ourselves into the parable and now have it just flip our lives upside down. So let's think through how that, this might be in living the parable. The, the understanding that I am, if I can begin to understand that I am not a hired in the morning 12-hour worker, but I am in reality a very last second at the end of the day, 11th hour worker deserving of nothing and yet the one who receives abundant, overwhelming grace, this should give me the same kind of humility that the centurion experienced in Matthew 8 where he says to Jesus, Lord, I am not worthy to have you come under my roof, but only say the word and my servant will be healed. He sees himself as an 11th hour worker who says, I do not deserve to have you in, even in my house. He knows he doesn't deserve anything. If we were to see the life of this centurion, perhaps narrated past that scene, we don't know anything about the rest of his life. I would imagine, though, that we don't just see him continue on the way his life was. I'm confident that we would see this gospel that he has begun to understand the grace of the Lord Jesus and it just flips his entire world upside down. The, the way he thought about his job, the way that he commanded his men, the way that he cared for his wife and his children if they existed back in Italy, the way he thought about sexual fulfillment and immorality, being away from his family, the way he thought about the gods and religious experience. As a religious outsider, outside of the people of God, this Roman soldier encounters the grace and mercy of Jesus, and this changes, changes the way that he ought to now live, the way that he ought to forgive others, the way that he ought to move toward others. And so are we. We are not Roman soldiers killing and persecuting others because they don't agree with our emperor or something, and yet all of us are outside of the people of God. All of us are opposed to God, an enemy deserving of nothing, not worthy to come under God's roof or to be in his presence. And yet for those of us who are in Christ, now those who have, were far have been brought near. Who once were enemies are now friends. Who once were orphans are now his adopted children. So this really isn't the parable. Perhaps you have a, a, a Bible that has subtitles there. And perhaps most of your subtitles might title chapter 20 as the laborers in the vineyard. But this is putting the emphasis on the wrong characters, isn't it? We ought to title this the parable of the generous landowner. The focus of this parable ought to be on the grace, the generosity of the one doing the hiring. The landowner who didn't owe the one-hour workers hardly anything, and yet he gives to them an overwhelming generosity. Like the disciples thought, we think, though, continually, that we are owed. We are owed. We understand, like if we took a theology exam, that we're saved by grace through faith, and yet deep down in our hearts, subconsciously, perhaps even verbally, we think that we're owed more than others. And so Jesus could have said, hey Peter, hey Nathan, you aren't owed anything. You should just be humble and thank God for his grace. And yet he could have said those things and Peter and I 
And all of us could have probably been like, okay, yeah, I understand that theologically. I'll try to live in humility and understanding of grace. But Jesus sneaks past these preconceived notions. And when Peter and I can place ourselves into the story and see just the overwhelming, abundant grace of me, an 11th hour worker who is owed nothing and that Jesus gives to enormously, now we can urge ourselves as the one hour workers to respond in humility and thankfulness. We can see that we have not worked a full day in perfection. We're working hard even when we realize that this parable is about overwhelming grace and that we are not owed Now we can come in humility. We don't shake our fist at God, accusing him for withholding, demanding that he give us more. We don't look around and see how God is generously giving and blessing others and think, why not me? Because anything that I have is sheer grace. But just as we must look at what precedes this parable, we almost also must look at what follows it because context matters. Matthew then gives us another interpretive key, interpretive key to understanding this parable in verse 17 through 19. It just goes right into it. Matthew tells this, this is a seamless story for Matthew. He writes, and as Jesus was going up to Jerusalem, he took the 12 the disciples aside and on the way he said to them, see, we're going up to Jerusalem. And the Son of Man will be delivered over to the chief priests and scribes, and they will condemn him to death, and deliver him over to the Gentiles to be mocked and flogged and crucified, and he will be raised on the third day. How is it that God is able to give to us generously? How is it that he is able to treat we one-hour, end-of-the-day workers as if we had worked the entire day? Well, because Jesus goes up to Jerusalem. Jesus allows himself to be handed over to the chief priests. He is condemned to death. He is delivered over to the Romans who will flog him and crucify him. And because he will be raised victoriously over sin and over death, Jesus is the 12-hour worker who is owed a full day's wage, who did work the way that we were not able. If anyone was owed anything, it was him. And yet he experienced the worst of the worst. He willingly went to the cross so that we, the ones who haven't earned anything, might experience the generosity of the Father. And this is the gospel that saves. This is the good news that just transforms and flips our entire existence. The way that we see the world, the lenses through which we now observe and see everything in the world That the Father can save us. He can bring us near and adopt us because of what is coming at the end of the road that Jesus is walking on. The cross at the top of the hill. We are owed nothing more. But because of Jesus, his life lived for us in perfection, his death died for us in love, his resurrection for us in power, now everything changes. The gospel is for those who have not yet believed. If you... Um, have never come to a place of experiencing, of receiving this kind of grace, of being treated as a full day, perfect worker, but still knowing that you're not, knowing that you haven't loved God, you haven't loved neighbor as yourself. This is for you. The gospel is for you tonight. I pray that you would 
not only hear of this story, but hear of the testimonies of the five that you're going to hear tonight and say, that was me, that is me, what they were, but now I want that. I want what they have. I want to be brought near to God and receive his grace. And all that must be done is just believing in Jesus, putting all of our faith, all of our lives in his hands. But the gospel is also for those of us who have believed as well. It's not something that you believe once and then forget about for the rest of your life. It's the thing that continues daily to transform and shape us because we're continually tempted to think of ourselves as the 12-hour workers, aren't we? We are still so tempted toward a sense of entitlement, toward tempting or tempted toward thinking that we will be given what we are owed and that if we work harder, then God will be more pleased with me, not pleased because of what Jesus has done for us, that if we would just work harder, we can earn our way into God's favor and acceptance and that he would save me. No, he wouldn't. He would not. It's only because of Jesus' broken body and shed blood that he would. So we profess with our very lives at the beginning of our Christian lives with this symbol of baptism, of saying that Jesus has taken me under, my death is his death, but now my life is his life. And I want to profess that to the world. And then, ongoingly as Christians, we profess the very same thing at the table, of saying that my life has no meaning apart from the empty tomb. My life has no meaning apart from Jesus' broken body and his shed blood, that we not only at one point in our life belonged to God through Christ, but that we belong every day, every moment, every week ongoingly to God through Christ because of what he has done for us at the top of the hill on the cross where he can shed his blood and just overwhelm us, just just pull us along in the rivers of his grace. Our sins there are many, his mercy is more I'm really, really looking forward to hearing of the mercy that these five have received, and I'm really looking forward to coming to the table together with you. United in Christ's body by faith, but also united to all of you in our common faith through the common blood of Christ. Let's pray that God would help us understand these things even more tonight. Our Father, we are sorry We are sorry for the way in which we think of ourselves wrongly as perfect all-day workers. Help us, we pray. Give us new lenses to see our own lives, to see the world around us, to see your kindness, to see your grace, and to see the cross of Christ as grace, grace, and only grace. Father, we have lived days today, we have lived weeks, we have lived months and years in our entire life uh, with our own self in the center of the universe. Help us. Help us to see you for who you are, to see ourselves in light of who you are, 
and for the shadow of the cross to loom more largely over every aspect of our life. We pray now for these five, that this day might be a day that they might remember for the rest of their lives, that it might be a day that is encouraging to us as well. Father, we pray for those who are perhaps far from you now this moment, but we pray that even through the hearing of these testimonies, these stories of your grace, that you might be stirring, that you might be wooing to yourself those who need your grace. We pray for these things in Christ's name. Amen. We hope you have been encouraged to deeper life in Christ through the preaching of this sermon. For more information about Christ's church, visit www.christchurchabq.com.